From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Theology on Mission today. I'm flying alone without Dave Fitch, but I have with me Nate Pyle. Uh, We're interviewing him. He's the author of a new book called Man Enough, How Jesus Redefines Manhood. That's uh, put out by Zondervan just this year. Nate lives in Fishers, Indiana. He's pastoring at Christ's Community Church. And you also work um, with the, he also works with the Christian Reformed Church and the Reformed Church of America to revitalize churches for mission. So you work with both the RCA and the CRC. That's, that's yes, interesting. That, yeah, uh, well, I'm an, actually an RCA pastor, uh, and there's a number of joint efforts that are going on between the RCA and the CRC, particularly around church planting and, and uh, church revitalization. So uh, I've been involved in one of those efforts for about seven years now. Awesome. Well, here at Theology on Mission, we're all about revitalizing churches for mission. But before we talk about what you're doing and how this uh, mission intersects with men, masculinity, and the mission of Jesus, I want to ask you for your input on the title of our podcast. Can I do that? You can absolutely do that. Our title is Theology on Mission, and we want you to help us define what that is for you. What does that mean for you? Theology on Mission. Yeah, so... All right, so I'll say it like this. I used to, when I was in high school, I got involved in Young Life. And then when I was in college, I did Young Life. And, you know, they talk a lot about incarnate, you know, incarnational ministry. And so when I think about theology on mission, rightly or wrongly, it's been shaped by that that mental model of incarnational ministry. And, and so uh, to take theology on mission for me would be to take, you know, the theological practice that we have and no longer allowing them just to be a... Uh, a mental exercise, but to actually incarnate those ideas. So, you know, if we believe that uh, that uh, grace is an essential component of the gospel, then what does it mean to incarnate grace and to extend grace and to actually be practicing that? Um, and so, for me, when I think of theology on mission, it's incarnate, incarnating what we believe. Uh, if right. that makes sense, so that's how's that how's that work? That's good. Word made flesh. I like it. That was really good for me having just sprung that on you. Well, cool. So part of your expression of theology on mission is the intersection of Jesus and our manhood. And this is where man enough kind of comes from. What led you to writing this book? Yeah, um, it's kind of funny. I never really expected that I would write a men's book. Uh, part of the problem is I never felt manly enough to write a men's book. You know, I'm not necessarily the man's man. And so uh, I, I've always felt, I, I've read books in the past on masculinity and manhood and what it means to be a Christian man and just never really resonated with me. And so this wasn't something that I set out to do. Um, but had an experience when I was 31. So this would have been four or five years ago now, um, where for the first time in my life, I really pretty authentically let down the guard. I let go of the pretense of trying to be the confident risk taking, guy who has all the answers. And I really was vulnerable with somebody um, and had one of those profound moments where they looked at me and in the midst of that vulnerability said, you know, that 13 year old boy that you just told me about, uh, he's been running your life 
And mm. if you continue to press into this stuff and you continue to be authentic about who you are, he will no longer get to control you. And I thought that that was the biggest bunch of hogwash ever. <laughs> uh, you know, like it just sounded like, you know, pop psychology. Uh, but I was trying on this new way of being, this way of being authentic, the way of letting go of trying to have all the answers and, and, and be the man, if you will. And what I found is I actually uh, felt more more human and more like a man than I ever have in my life. And so that just kind of spurred on my, you know, kind of my thinking around what is a man? What is the difference between men and women? And for me, I just had this hard, I kept, you know, looking at all the ways in which our culture describes men. And I just kept saying, I don't know that the gospel is calling men to, to be like that. I think men, you know, we as men are to be like Jesus and Jesus doesn't necessarily look like our stereotypical male. Mm. And so that's kind of the book came out of all those wonderings and those processings, but it really just started with me for the first time, you know, in 30 some years of feeling like a man, which was by doing something that was seemed very unmanly and being vulnerable. Mm. Well, so early on, um, you talk about, you say masculinity is not under crisis because of feminization, which is, you know, a lot of times we think it's, oh, it's because women are taking over. That's why men are confused. Masculinity is not under crisis because of feminization, but it is in trouble today because more often than not, it is defined by what it is not rather than by what it is. Can you yeah. kind of fill that out about like how masculinity is defined by what it's not instead of what it is? Yeah. I, you know, when I think about what it means to be a man, it's that, you know, being a man is constantly having to prove yourself and you're proving yourself by what you're not. I'm not a boy. I'm not uh, a, a woman. I'm not weak. And so we come up with these sayings, you know, real men open doors for women. Real men don't cry. Real, real men love football, whatever it is. And so we're constantly, uh, you know, saying, well, if we're a man, then we're not this over here. And there's very little just affirming of of men that happens. There's very little of um, uh, there isn't like this affirmed. This is what it looks like. It's this. This is what it doesn't look like. It's see even here. I'm having a hard time describing it <laughs> because this is what I think it is. It's it's harder to describe what it is. And it's so it's much easier to describe what it is not. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to offer uh, a just something that it might be, which is the picture of Jesus. Um, and so that's, that's really what I've, what I've been really wrestling with. And because of that, I think that some of the shifts in masculinity or a shifts away from things that it used to be not, you know, men used to be these types of things. And now it's shifting is caught. That's what's causing the crisis in masculinity. Mm. Sure. Well, we had uh, Carolyn Custis James on a month or two ago, and she has a new book called Maelstrom that has come out and it's also about the plight of men um, and how they've, how men, her, her thesis is, is that men suffer under patriarchy, not as much, but you know, just like women do as well as yep. hierarchy. And she links the solution to remembering that we're all made in the image of God. Now you end up saying something similar, but you put the emphasis more on the true image of God in Jesus. So how does turning to Jesus help us understand what masculinity might look like and kind of disengage from these false idols or images of it. Yeah. Can you say that again? I kind of, I lost you there for a second. Oh, I skipped out a little bit. So how does, how does turning to Jesus, the true image of God help us re-engage with our masculinity? 
How do you explore yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I have read bits of Carolyn's book and he, like you said, we're pretty similar on that. She look, links or tries to root men masculinity and the image of God. I maybe go a step further and root it in the Imago Christi, you know, the image of Christ. Um, and, and the way that I really find it in there is that in Christ, we are adopted as sons. We are declared to be heirs. You know, from Hebrews chapter two, we are, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, not ashamed to call us uh, sisters. Um, and, and recognizing that our being affirmed as sons and daughters of God happens long before we prove ourselves worthy. And again, what I see in, in American masculinity and even within the church is this, this need to have men prove themselves as men, which seems pretty antithetical to the gospel in which we don't have to prove ourselves. That it's simply, you know, God's uh, love towards us that grants us, um, that, that shows that we are worthy, that we have worth. And so for men, for men to recognize that our worth is not found or our manhood is not found in what we can prove and what we do, but it's in who we are as adopted sons, uh, who we are as brothers uh, of Christ. That, that's really what I try to root it in. And, and that's the launching point then for how we act in the world, uh, that we act in the world, that we do the things we do in the world because of our identity in Christ. Mm. Excellent. Putting uh, putting the grace and uh, kind of the anointing of adoption, um, sons and daughters, putting that front and center. What for men, like what are the different attributes of, so in one sense you're saying the solution is to be discipled into the way of Christ. So what would be some of the uh, characteristics of those? You mentioned some of them as, you know, weakness and humility and, um, but what are, can, can you fill some of those out? Like, what does Jesus help us turn away from, and what does he help us to put on um, yeah. as we follow him? Yeah, uh, I think that Jesus helps us turn away from, uh, particularly in men, of having to be powerful, right? So when you think about, mas- when I think about masculinity and what does it mean to be a man, and e- even are there differences between men and women, one of the differences I think is how we enact our agency in the world. So men typically, you know, have a, 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 an, a uh, agency in the world that is more physical. Uh, and so we, we revere strengths, we, we revere characteristics like strength and power and virility and movement and all of those types of things. And Jesus really frees us up from having to pursue power and having to uh, show our strength and make these displays. Um, and he allows us to embrace weakness. He, you know, even Paul would go so far as that we delight in weakness because it is in our weakness that Christ is made strong. Uh, we can be vulnerable um, because we know that um, that uh, that our shield is Christ. That we don't have to protect ourselves; that mm. He will protect us. Right. Um, and and then I even go. We can embrace the fruits of the spirit. You know, the fruits of the spirit are one something that we can agree that all Christians, men or women, are called to embody these characteristics. And yet, if we were just to list them out and say, you know, which of these characteristics tend to be more you know, associated with men or which ones tend to be associated with women, the fruits of the spirit are typically associated with, with women, right? You got gentleness and kindness and even love and joy to some regards, which makes it really hard then for men to embrace these if they haven't 
uh, rooted themselves in their identity in Christ, like they're still trying to prove themselves being strong and stoic and all that, then all of a sudden it becomes hard to be gentle and kind. Um, and so, so for me, the fruits of the spirit is also a place where, where our cultural stereotypes are challenged and Mm. Christ calls us into a new image. Yeah, absolutely. And when, and when we don't practice those, those fruits, there's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of trying to find our significance in these other achievements, but that leads to you explore quite a bit about this problem of loneliness. Um, You say you have this uh, section, which I thought was really great. Um, If men are unable to be weak, they will be unable to be vulnerable and if they are unable to be vulnerable, their relationships will lack intimacy. Uh, and this does, isn't just with spouses, right? That you're just talking about just friendships in general. And if yep. their relationships lack intimacy, men will suffer from chronic loneliness. And when I was reading uh, your book, I ended up having multiple conversations with men where they were confessing that they were lonely. Uh, so how did, in a sense, this loneliness and lack of vulnerability, how was that kind of an impetus for exploring some of the, the different issues that you were like saw functioning in your life or or the life of other men? Yeah. Well, and I talked about earlier about that moment that I had in which I was, you know, vulnerable, maybe for one of the first times in my life in a really authentic way. Uh, what I was actually confessing to someone was how lonely I felt. Um, and so for me, that was kind of the big laundry. Like I felt incredibly lonely despite being, despite having lots of friends and despite being seen as someone who uh, had it all together, despite being, you know, someone who was confident, in all of this, I was chronically lonely. And that was because I wouldn't let people get too close to me because I feared if they got too close to me, they'd see that I was a fraud. They'd see that, uh, or, or they deem that I wasn't worthy of their friendship. Uh, I, I live with, you know, I share a lot in the book about middle school, um, which mm. is one reason if, if I'm ever going to believe in purgatory, it's because of middle school. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so during my middle school years, I just had so many profound experiences where I was rejected by people who I thought were my friends. Mm. And that just within me created a wound where it, I just believe that at some point you're going to reject me. It's just going to happen. Mm. And so the way that I protect myself from that pain was to just not let you get close enough to tell myself the lie that it didn't matter, that I didn't need you, that I could handle it on my own, that I've got it. And so that just created this intense sense of loneliness. No one knew me. They just knew the image that I projected, which was the image I thought they would like and that they wouldn't reject. Um, and, and, and so, you know, if, we're going to combat that, uh, that loneliness within guys, then we have to allow guys to be weak. We have to allow guys to be vulnerable. We have to allow guys to share that sort of stuff because that's a part of who they are. That's a part of who we are. We all have vulnerabilities. We all have weaknesses. And so we have to, we have to do that, uh, be able to share that. I think the other piece that talks about talking about the loneliness is, you know, I think it exists in lots of levels, but for guys, it's maybe more intense. Um, we just are competitive with one another. Um, you know, there's constantly this competition. And again, even in proving yourself, one of the ways that I prove that we prove that we're men is by proving that I'm better than you, that I'm smarter than you. I'm faster than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm better at business than you, you know, whatever it is, there is this competition that exists between men. And as we know, some competition is healthy, but mm-hmm. there's a point in which it becomes, uh, unhealthy and, and an idol, and, and, and a, even a thing that drives wedges between our relationships with people. Um, and, and I think that that is, that is something that 
exists with all men, that there's just this underlying competitiveness that keeps us from uh, allowing ourselves to be known. Absolutely. I, yeah, I find that in myself quite a bit and it, it creeps out in different ways. You know, for some it's athletic prowess, for others it's bank accounts, for others it's, you know, awards and accolades. And But there's always, you know, there's some sort of uh, mechanism by which we compare ourselves and then seek to understand ourselves in a hierarchy. And if we can't be above that person, at least we're above this person. Um, and we'll stick it to, you know, the next one down on the totem pole. So, yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, it's just a, a horrible situation that we're in. And so the question is, how do we take the positive, uh, uh, I ask this because I have two sons, right? So this is like very personal to me. How do we take that positive competitive energy and not just kill it and call it sin, but to try to redirect it? These are always the questions that I'm asking. Uh, how do we re- redirect some of these masculine energies, if we could call them, into a more positive direction rather than what I feel like sometimes we get, not from your book, but from others, is like, oh, we just need to kill that. Like, that's bad. That masculine right. energy is bad. Um, so, like, have you heard those messages? Or or please come up with, tell me all your solutions here. Help me. Help me out. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think that as men, part, and, and actually I think this is just true of all human beings, but 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 since we're talking about men that part of the way that we embody our masculinity is to take responsibility for the world around us, Uh, that we begin to talk about and think through, how can I take a greater level of responsibility for my neighborhood, for my community, for my schools, for my church, for my office place? I mean, wherever we find ourselves, how do we take responsibility in that place? Or, you know, to use a more Christian word, how do I, how do I enact my stewardship in those places? Um, and I think that our competitiveness, you know, is driven by a desire to do things better. You know, uh, what we maybe the, the if you want to say the sinful side of it comes when we try to do something better than the person and ascribe worth, you know, because I could do better than you, I am better, you know, because I could beat you, I'm better than you, because I could outperform you, uh, I have more worth. Um, But if our competitiveness is, is, is sort of redirected in such a way that we spur one another on to take responsibility around the world so that we see the, the human flourishing happen to a greater degree, I think all of a sudden that becomes something that's, that's helpful. That's, that's, uh, it, it takes those energies and redirects them in a, in a, in a way that aligns with God's shalom in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's the way that, uh, oh gosh, now I'm going to struggle to remember. I think maybe it's in Ephesians where Paul says, if there's those of you who are stealing, give them something to do with their hands. You know, like if competitiveness is, is, you know, causing you to think of yourself as better than another person. Don't just call it bad and completely walk away from it, but mm-hmm. redirect those energies in a positive way. Um, and, and I think that the positive way comes out and how can we, how can we be better stewards? How can we take responsibility for the world around us and see human flourishing happen or to a greater degree? Mm, that's great. Um, so this is to kind of veer off a little bit. Yeah. But it's it's related now in your book, which I really like. So th- I'm just I'm bringing to you my own internal struggles. If you could help uh, be my you know therapist, my theological therapist. But I really like what you're saying, and I believe that there's this uh, that we need to be affirmed in our masculinity as well as femininity. 
that we don't need to prove ourselves that in God's grace, we are told that we're enough. Um, and so those things are all, I want to affirm those as true. Yeah. But I've also, um, because as a father of two boys, I've really dug into a lot of the men's movement literature uh, of all branches, you know, from John Eldridge to Richard Rohr. And there's this strong sense that, um, that in the West, we've lost this process of male initiation. Yeah. And that um, historically, most cultures have had um, processes by which they initiate men. And I noticed in your book a little bit, but certainly in Carolyn's book, that there was this kind of criticism of needing any type of process by which, you know, boys become men or what it means to kind of confer and direct manhood. Uh, so I was wondering, like, do, have have you sensed that tension, or does is what I'm saying make sense? There's both because we want to. It's kind of this the salvation and sanctification question, right? We're saved yep. in Christ, but we're still being formed into Christ, and so in one sense we're enough, and we're saved, and we're forgiven. In another sense, we're still a work in progress. So, uh, so yeah. So how do you respond to to some of that? Yeah, I think that that's great, and that's really something that I actually I wrestled with. Uh, uh, I, I wrestle with it a little bit in the book. There's a chapter in there called your name shall be. And if I was going to say like, that's my chapter on initiation, that was it. Uh, but I definitely, um, I definitely get away from the, you know, the explicit masculine initiation, right? Because of the way I couch it is in baptism, you know, so we even see there's a sort of initiation that happens when Jesus is baptized and, you know, the voice from heaven says, this is my son and in him I'm well pleased. And so my, I began to wonder a little bit, you know, can the church offer that kind of initiation to its men, whether that's in baptism where uh, there is a, you know, we re-envision discipleship as it happens around baptism. So baptism is, you know, this right by which one acknowledges publicly the spiritual reality that they are an adopted son of God, and that gives them a new vocation in the world as a man. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, um, and, and so that's one place that I wonder about that. But I also recognize um, that there is something, that there is an important experience that, that guys need in being affirmed, you know, cause I think that's what those initiation rights are all about. They are about the affirming you have now transitioned. You mm-hmm. were a boy. Now you are a man. We affirm that we recognize it and we're going to treat you as such. Um, what I don't think is necessarily helpful is that we try to, uh, universalize that. I think for some guys going out into the woods and having that sort of primal experience is something that's really going to be helpful. So the kid who goes out hunting with their dad, that could be a really transformative initiation experience. For some, it's learning how to change the oil in their car. For others, for me, I think of that initiation spirit experience as the moment that, again, I'll go back to that because it was one of the most powerful experiences of my life where – you know, I was vulnerable. I was told, you know, in this moment, that you know, that thirteen-year-old boy is no longer going to dominate you. Is no longer going to control your life. And then the person looked at me and said, "I feel closer to you than I ever have in our three-year relationship." Hmm. You know, so for me, I needed to hear that even when all the pretenses stripped away, even when I'm not putting my best foot forward, I'm loved. I'm accepted. Uh, you know, I am worth 
uh, having a relationship with. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so maybe a guy, a guy needs that kind of experience. And so I do think that that can be a little bit troubling when we try to, you know, universalize and say, well, this is the kind of experience that all men need. I think we got to get to the point where we know one another so that we can give each other what we, what the other needs, whether that is the, you know, the very masculine experience and that needs to be affirmed in someone or someone else needs to have a, you know, you're still a man, even if you do display characteristics that are more typically feminine. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Th- that's kind of how I think about it. Uh, but I do think we all need that experience where, uh, where in a sense we're given a new name yeah. and that's recognized. I do wish, and this was one of the critiques that I did see from one person that I would have explored more the transition from boyhood to manhood. If I had to pick a weakness of the book, I didn't explore that enough. Mm-hmm. So, well, they were probably reading it like me with kids, you know, right at 13. And so, uh, Yep. Like I am, I'm like, well, how does this help me transition to a teenager? So <laughs> that's definitely part of what I was uh, wondering while I was reading it. But uh, so I definitely like the reason I ask those questions is because I think what happens in our world with men is that there is an unanswered question that permeates their lives, which um, which I I want baptism to answer, which is you have enough, you're accepted who you are. You, um, you are welcome here. And, um, I'm just wondering if, I don't know, I'm just thinking like, can baptism do that? Um, in most initiation rites, there's a, there's kind of a sense of proving that you're man, but there's also, at least as I've, you know, read and learned about it, there's more of a conferring of manhood where there has to be some sort of experience so that it's not just, you know, a bare statement. So there's, whether it's, you know, survival experience in the woods or something, but there's a sense of like the, the boy himself can be like, no, I've done something that maybe I thought I couldn't do. And now the men are affirming to me, like you have, you are a man, like you have what it takes. So, um, so you mentioned baptism, but I also wonder about the temptations, like, was, oh, yeah. you know, which happened together. And for me, I think the baptism and the temptations are actually more of the, the total initiation of Jesus because he was blessed in his baptism and he heard the words of sonship coming down from heaven and he was even anointed by the spirit. But then, you know, in Mark, especially, well, and Luke, you kind of get this the spirit drove him into the wilderness and then he was tempted. And I think that's where the sonship was questioned. And so being able to experiencing the questioning of your own manhood, your sonship, of your calling and mission, and then coming out that the other end, I think is really important. I think uh, that's what sets up the the ability for Jesus to persist in his mission is because not was he just affirmed, but he also persevered in the temptations. So, so those are just thoughts I'm thinking of is how can we affirm in the baptism, but also prepare for the temptation, but even create a, not a controlled environment. You know, but I, I don't know. I'm just you know, like, how, how do we create those kind of those rigorous things and be like, you need we need to survive. Let's survive together. So, yeah, these are some of the things I'm thinking about. No, I think that that's great. And I actually I mean, I think those are some some really great questions that are mm-hmm. worth exploring. For me, it comes back to is there I mean, it, it, ideally, wouldn't that be discipleship in the way that it looks? It, 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 you know, I don't think that's what it, the way discipleship looks currently. But ideally, right. isn't that, you know, wouldn't that be sort of the space where if you talk about a controlled environment of some sports, that it's in the space of this very unique uh, relationship um, where there is sort of this, uh, you know, imitate me, do as I do 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's very much a part of discipleship. And then also the sending out, you know, when we see Jesus discipling the seven, you know, the, his disciples, he sends out the 12, he sends out the 72. Okay, come back. Let's talk about it. What did you learn? Right. That right. as we, you know, help people live into their sonship, that there would be a discipling relationship in which, you know, it's like, okay, you now have, uh, you, there's a vocation for your life. There's a stewardship, a responsibility. Go out. Let's practice this. This is, you, you know, uh, imitate me, and then I'm going to send you out and go do that. I, I wonder if the space of discipleship, that wouldn't be a piece of it. Um, but that even requires a whole lot of new imagination when we think about discipleship and how it's currently done in most contexts. Well, uh, I'll just send a note to Zondervan, and we'll be like, we're expecting Nate to have a, a like maybe a becoming man enough, like a part two. <laughs> And the first half could be about like childhood and the second half could be discipleship for men. Right. So, uh, so I'll be looking for that in 2016, maybe 17. That's fine. Yeah. So, give me an extra year there. But that'd be yeah. Nice. 20, well, I know you're a full-time pastor and a dad, so whatever, I guess you have stuff to do besides write books for me that solve my problems. But, uh, thanks for being on the, the, the show. The book is man enough. How Jesus redefines manhood by Nate pile. It's uh, published by Zondervan. It's just out for the, I think just the last two months. It's really great. It's something that, uh, anyone who's listening, pastors or laypersons or people who are just exploring what, uh, this theology or what, uh, Jesus is about. Anyone could read this book. I really love it. So I highly recommend it. Man enough by Nate pile. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Amen.